Well, let's open our Bibles. If you didn't bring one, we have a pew Bible for you, page 601. We're in Isaiah, chapter 41, Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 20 this morning. If you recall from last week's sermon passage, it ended with God promising his people supernatural power and strength in the midst of their despair. Our passage today opens with God calling out to the nations, uh, referred to as the coastlands in our text, and he is inviting them too to sit down with God and, and renew their strength. Our God is like that. But will they? What will they do? Will they experience a great breakthrough or will they tremble and scurry away? And where does this leave us today? Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by pass his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble and they have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry lands springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedars, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the, and the pine together. 
that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us. Uh, at first glance, it's perhaps a bit confusing, coastlands and worms and things like that. Uh, help us, though, um, to understand this. Uh, better yet, help us to apply the main truth of this passage to our lives that we may rest in your sovereign good hands. We pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure you're all familiar with those uh, all-state commercials. You know the mayhem commercials. The character is played by a, a guy named Dean um, Minters. Minter's character, Mayhem, personifies the unpredictability of life and the dangers that are around every corner that can strike when least expected. So make sure you're in good hands, the good hands of all state. In one commercial, Mayhem states, I'm your hot water heater. You hardly know I exist. That's too bad. Because if my pressure relief valve gets stuck, we hot water heaters can transform into rocket-propelled wrecking balls. And then there's this explosion, and this the guy goes shooting through the roof. Another commercial, I like this one a little better. He says, I'm a teenage girl. My BFF texted and said, she's kissed Johnny. Well, that's a problem, because I like Johnny. And now I'm emotionally compromised, and I'm like, OMG, Becky's not even hot. And whoopsies, crash. I think these mayhem commercials are so successful because they personify the unrelenting um, dangers that surround us every day. Life is like this, and not just with accidents, but also with aging and illness and conflicts and turf wars and greed. We're surrounded by mayhem. But Isaiah wants God's people to know that we're in good hands, God's hand. In our passage, God assures his people in verse 10, do not be dismayed. Don't let the mayhem sideline you. Why? For I am your God. I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. <laughs> Amazing. Now, it's important to remember the historical context. <laughs> this isn't an ancient Israelite driving a chariot without sufficient insurance and a stray ox kicks the chariot off a cliff. No, this is mayhem on a huge scale. God's people find themselves where they never wanted to be, where they never thought they would be. They're in exile in a foreign land in Babylon. But God will get the final gracious word. And so we need this word from God too. The New Testament makes it clear that we Christians experience life as exiles. Remember how Peter opened up his letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. And remember in the writer to the Hebrews described how all the faithful people of God lived as strangers and exiles on this earth, right? This world is unrelenting. It is one dreadful event after another interspersed with some happy moments. <laughs> on top of it all, as Christians, when we voice our love and concern for this world, we are increasingly told that we are the evil ones. And so we can find ourselves anxious or fearful or uncertain. 
we can find ourselves asking God, do you, do you really intend for life to be this hard? The big point this morning for us to take in is that God alone is the real source of refuge in this unrelenting world. God alone is the real source of refuge in this unrelenting world. Isaiah desires to secure the enjoyment, joyful agreement of our hearts, proving that the one true God not only exists, but that he is active in history and he's active in our lives and he has the power to sustain us through all circumstances. We will look at this under two headings. God alone stirs up history and then God alone strengthens us. First, God alone stirs up history. By, by stirring up, we mean that God orchestrates all that takes place on earth and therefore everything is in his hands. Everything is under his control. And amazingly, he invites the whole world uh, to draw near to him. We see this invitation in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw um, near for judgment together. Our passage opens with God inviting the nations, referred to as the coastlands, to draw near to God for judgment now, judgment here uh, doesn't mean punishment. Rather, judgment here is like, do you have good judgment, right? Do you see things rightly, correctly? What an offer God makes to an unbelieving world. The same grace and strength and knowledge that God gives to the people he offers to this world. Just draw near, he asks. It's kind of like being invited to a special guided tour from the designer himself, right? That's what God invites us all into, a behind-the-scenes look at who it is that, that makes sense of all creation. The question is, will we approach God? Will we listen in humble silence, draw near, speak with God, and then let the grace of God renew you? Will we do this? Isaiah peels back a layer of reality to reveal why we should trust God. We, he addresses this in verses 2 and 3. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, and he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his, with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by pass. His feet have not tried. What is going on uh, in the world? What is happening? That is what these people will experience one day. They, they're trying to find meaning in this world. Is there anything in this world that, that coheres? Is there purpose behind anything? Do we have any hope of not being tramp, trampled? And Isaiah says, the answer to that is not a what, but a who. Who stirred up the one from the east? We will see more fully in chapters to come that the who from the east uh, is a king who will come onto the stage. It's in about 100 years, his name is Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia, and he's going to go on a warring rampage, and he will conquer all the neighboring nations, including Babylon, where Israel is now in exile and captivity. Isaiah, the prophet, he's foretelling the future. Now, how can Isaiah tell the future? <laughs> because the future is in God's hands and because Isaiah is God's prophet. But that's not the point here. The point here is that there is a who to address. Who is in control? Do things just happen? Or is God at work? 
Are the nihilists right? Everything is meaningless, for there is no God. Or the Epicureans right? There is no God. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Is it up to us to make meaning out of life? Or, or are we part of a larger story where God is on his throne, where he is able to stir up events as he sees fit? For us, Cyrus is ancient history by now, right? But for the original audience in this book of Isaiah, he was yet to come. This King Cyrus from the east is meant to be a comforting proof that as Cyrus rides triumphantly towards world dominance, it is actually God at work in Cyrus. And God makes it perfectly clear in verse 4. Again, he asks the who question, and he settles it clearly. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God is saying who has been working behind the scenes from long before you were even born and who will be there orchestrating all the events on earth when the final generation walks on this fallen earth. God says, I, the Lord, am he. Listen, God wants his anxious, worry-filled people to know that he's the one who began it all. And he will still be in control at that last nanosecond of time. He is with us right now. Listen, this is meant to have a comforting effect. It's meant to assure our souls. God's inviting the whole world to think that through. He invites the nations to come close, take a look. But what would they do? Let's read verse 5 and 6. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Be strong. At first glance, it might seem like a good response, like neighbor helping neighbor. The coastlands, the nations tremble at the life events that God orchestrates. And they respond by helping their neighbors and speaking encouraging words. Be strong. And so how is this completely wrong behavior? Because God says to this world gone wild, he says, come to me and I will be your source of strength. But the world says, no, thank you, and then tries to strengthen one another apart from God. Do you see that circumstance? Do you see why that is so wrong? This is the sad reality of this world. The help that humanity desperately needs only can be found in God. But humans are too arrogant and prideful and self-sufficient to ask for help. Next in verse 7, the people resort to making idols that they believe will get them safely through this scary world. It's a team effort. Look at verse 7 and notice the word strengthen again. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer strengthens him who strikes with the anvil, saying, to, saying of the soldering, hmm, that looks good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They're nailing down the idol so it doesn't topple over. We see here human beings using their strength to make idols that cannot, in return, strengthen them. And so this is perhaps the saddest part of being a Christian. You see people 
family members, neighbors, co-workers, strangers. You see countless people every day banging their hammers upon their lives of gold overlay of their idols, believing that, they, that what they form will provide some sort of refuge for their weary soul. Nothing could be further from the truth. That career, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that success that you think will deliver whatever, it will never give you what you desire. It's an idol made with your own hands. And just as foolish as handcrafting an idol of wood and overlaying it with gold and nailing it down so it won't topple and worshiping as your source of strength, it is foolish to do such things. It's like, you guys familiar with that M.C. Escher drawing of the two hands? You, you, you remember what that, what, what's going on? Each hand is drawing the other hand. That's what idols are. Man creating something that will be a refuge for man, but it'll never work. In verse 10, God says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's God's offer. The God who created all things and rules over all things says, let my mighty hand strengthen you. Will you let him? God alone stirs up history. Now God alone strengthens us. The big idea here in this final section is, is this. What Isaiah shows us is that God desires to do what only God can do for us, to strengthen us with a strength that satisfies us to the very core of our being. First, God speaks through Isaiah to show his people his steadfast commitment to them. Do you want to know how committed God is to you, his people? Here we go. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. Grab your Bible, look at it. Try to pick up the many ways God shows his commitment to us. I don't even think I could get them all right. There's so many. But to you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. By the way, that's a good thing. I've chosen you and not cast you off. But fear not for what I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think some of us need to Soak in that text for the rest of this week or the month. Did you pick up on God's commitment to you if you're in Christ? Gosh, we are God's offspring. He's chosen us. He's called us. He's taken us in. He said, I've chosen you and I'm not going to cast you off. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed. I will strengthen and help you. I will, help, I will uphold you with what? My good, my righteous right hand. What an amazing God. We might fail all the time at holding on to God, but he has us in his hand. So what is God doing here? He is assuring his people that he is their God and nothing will change that and that he will be our source of strength and, re and refuge in this unrelenting world. God is saying what? That we are his responsibility. How comforting and encouraging is that? 
Picture this in your mind. On one side is a person struggling to hold up an idol like wealth or beauty or popularity or, or comfort and just struggling. It's not giving back what they'd hoped. They lose strength. Their arms fall. And on the other side is God <laughs> holding his people in his powerful hand. And notice how they're not anxious or fearful, but instead joyful and rejoicing. The, this is the difference between human effort and divine grace, between death and life. Which have you chosen? After this, God gives a case study in verses 11 through 13 to illustrate what he means. When you live in God's hands as his servants in the world, people will be incensed against you. People will strive against you. Verse 11, behold, all who are, there it is, incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. They're gone. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Why is this all happening? Because God is the one in control and we are in his hands. And then he says, verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. This God-rejecting, idol-worshiping world says, um, is always incensed at the people of God, often mad at us, angry. When we promote holiness, people say we're judgmental. When we defend biblical marriage between a man and a woman, the world calls us evil. When we affirm that there's just two sexes, man and a woman, the world calls us transphobic. And so there's always persecution that comes when the people of God seek to honor God with their lives. Christian, it's true. You are a stranger and an exile serving the Lord upon this unrelenting earth. But notice how the Lord ends this statement in verse 13. It's wonderful. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Earlier, the Lord said, I will, withhold, uphold, I will uphold you in my right hand. Now he says, I hold your right hand. Not I will or I may or perhaps. It's I am holding it right now. <laughs> Ever notice people don't hold hands as much as it seems like they used to? <laughs> I don't think it's a COVID thing. I don't know. I seem to remember when I was younger, like, I always saw people holding hands out in public, you know, Parents with kids, lovers, just friends walking down the street. It says, I'm connected to you. I'm committed to you. We belong to each other. You're valuable to me. I've got this. Now take that image and let God's word to you sink in. I am the Lord. I hold your right. Not I may hold your hand if you're a good Christian. No, I've got it right now. I hold your hand whether you think your hand is being held or not. You might feel alone and distant, but I'm here. Fear not. I'm the one who helps you. You notice, if you're holding on to an idol, the Lord has a hard time holding on to your hand. <laughs> But when we lay them down, we 
we feel his hand upon us and we're strengthened. Now something tremendous takes place when we open our eyes to this reality as God's chosen people. What happens? It transforms our life, listen, from victimhood to servanthood. You know, it's really, really easy these days to live on earth embracing a victimhood mentality. This world is unrelenting. It's one trial after another, at least so it seems. You get a raise at work, but it really doesn't cover the cost of living increase. And you feel you can't even get a break, that the world's stacked against you. You can feel the victim of a, a machine that's outside of your control. Is it the greedy corporations? Is it the unrestrained government spending? Is it some systemic evil that no one can rein in? I don't know. We don't know. But we tend to feel like victims all the time. Do you see yourself with this tendency towards victimhood? Well, this is not who we are as Christians. Scripture declares what? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Jesus, our Redeemer, he became the victim for us so that our, that our redeemed lives matter for good in this world. We're not victims. We're servants of the living God who suffer and experience life in his hands. Listen, our Lord doesn't want our identities to be that of victims. We are servants in our Redeemer's hands. Verse 9, you are my servant. I have chosen you. Verse 14, I, the Lord, am your Redeemer. Listen, let's get this in our heads. To, to be a servant in this sense of our Lord, it's not a demotion. It's a promotion. It's not a relegation, but an elevation. It's not punishment, but a privilege. As King David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Instead of living dejected lives as powerless victims, God calls us to live joyful, powerful lives in his service. And oh, as the next few verses makes clear, this service is grand and glorious. In our next section, it's kind of awkward and it's kind of hard to understand, but um, God gives us this assurance to live as, as servants in his world. You remember a few sermons ago when um, Isaiah opened up, at the beginning of Isaiah 40, and he spoke of a day when every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Remember that? I know it's a few weeks ago, but remember how this speaks of moral topography in the world today and how this world, as it is right now, is not suitable to display God's glory fully. But everything is going to change. Now, every valley will be lifted up uh, um, and every mountain made low. And now here in chapter 41, he finally gets to who's doing this work and he intends it to be us. I know he calls us worms. It's a little awkward. We're totally inadequate for the task. But as I read, God makes a worm into a sharp, powerful threshing sledge. Definitely weird, but let's read. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is, is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. And you shall thresh the mountains and crush them 
You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Now, Isaiah is not talking about the church wielding its political power. He is talking about how in the gospel, human weakness triumphs over opposition. That's how Paul summarized his life work in 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure where in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. To live this weak but powerful life, it can be really intimidating, right? God says, fear not. I'm going to make you into a powerful threshing sledge. By the way, that's a farm implement. It separates the wheat from the chaff. It's quite violent. It has teeth. And the chaff gets thrown up in the air and blown away. This is the power of God working in the church to thresh every obstacle that diminishes the glory of God here on earth. Church, do you see that as your calling? Christian, let's stop acting like powerless victims and instead let us boldly live for the glory of God that it might spread throughout this earth. Lastly, Isaiah addresses our spiritual neediness. When you hear God say, you're my servant, now go be a threshing sledge. (laughs) We naturally feel a little insufficient for the task even if we do believe that God is able to provide the strength. It's true, right? We're we're not so sure we want to go there. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds kind of tiring. So Isaiah speaks of how God will more than satisfy the spiritual thirst of our souls when we serve him. Look at verses 17 through 19. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and and, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. That's crazy. And the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. The desert's going to turn into a giant forest. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together. I don't know, maybe they don't belong together, but I guess they are now. God is presenting himself to us as our abundantly satisfying source of refreshment. Or as Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This water is outpouring upon God's people symbolizes the bountiful salvation flowing to us by the Holy Spirit. When the people of God are dry and thirsty, we turn in prayer to our Redeemer who relieves our thirst himself. And as you see, the Lord promises not a light sprinkling. Here you go. Have a thimble full of water. No, fountains in the midst of the valleys. What does this tell us? Listen, what does this tell us? It tells us that we are needy. And it tells us that God is that good. And when God refreshes us this way, 
we come to know and delight in all in God all the more. Verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is us at the end of the day going, oh my gosh, the Lord was so good to me today. I'm going to draw near to him tomorrow and serve him tomorrow that I might experience this joy tomorrow as well. As we serve God, he refreshes us. And then God does what? He increases his glory in our own eyes, how much more we need him. And then this wonderful spiral or dance occurs. The more we delight in our Redeemer, the less we fear and the more we serve. And then we experience more of God's supernatural power at work in us as he sustains us. And so we glory all the more in our Redeemer. And then we serve even more again and again and again. And so we spiral in a good way, closer and closer into the hands of our Redeemer. Does this make sense? Let me ask you, is this the life you're now experiencing? Is your life a living testimony to what God can do in and through weak people? God invites us into a deeper and deeper spiral, into his hands of grace and power and joy. And all we do is what? Desire it. Ask God, God, can you help me experience this? The rest is God's work in us for his glory. Listen, in this unrelenting world, how can we not take refuge in God's hands? So this morning, we've seen that God alone is the real source of refuge in this unrelenting world. He alone stirs up all the events on earth. He is on his throne. He alone is the ultimate that matters above all things. And he calls us to draw near so that he may uphold us in his powerful hand. And God alone strengthens us so we're not to fear because God is with us. In Christ, God has a hold of your right hand. So will you entrust your soul to God and let him lead you and care for you, even if it means hard, faithful service to Christ and his kingdom? May we commit all of our lives into his hand and maybe experience the joy that only he provides. Children of God, you are in good hands, the best hands, the hands of God. Let's pray. Father, every week your word to us amazes us. On the one hand, we don't feel worthy of this. We, we, we know you're a good God, and yet we often just create our own idols, and in our own strength we walk on this earth. Oh, how we need to hear from you today that we are in your hands, that you have not abandoned us, you never will, that in Christ we are not just forgiven our sins, but in Christ we belong to you. We are your chosen people. May this truth empower us today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.